Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand. My Bible's open to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke in our text this morning, verses 20 through 24. We're in the second part of this series called The Signs of the Second Coming. The Signs of the Second Coming. Remember that in the 21st chapter, we are listening in on a conversation that took place between Jesus and his inner circle of disciples. They are named in some of the other Gospels, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. This conversation is recorded in three of the four gospel accounts, and we have to look at all three of them, I said last week, to get the fullest picture of what the Lord would have us know. Um, This conversation, this uh, passage of scripture in all three gospels is known by a number of monikers. Uh, Many of you know it as the Olivet Discourse. Matthew tells us that it took place at the Mount of Olives, although Luke shares that it began inside the temple complex. Some call it the Apocalyptic Discourse, that is, uh, it speaks of the end of days. It's a conversation that began outside the court of women. Remember, people were coming to drop their alms and offerings in one of the 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles there. And Jesus was there and he was making observation. Scripture says he looked up and he saw a contrast. He saw the rich people coming in, making quite a show apparently of uh, how much they were giving. And then there was this poor widow. She put in just two small copper coins Jesus pointed out to his disciples that God judges very differently than men do. He said that this woman had given more than all of them. And from there, the conversation turned to the temple itself. The disciples seemed to be very impressed with the architecture and the decor of the temple. Jesus was not. In fact, when they got to the Mount of Olives after having left the temple and looked back at the temple, Jesus prophesied that not one stone would remain upon another. Remember these stones, some of them were 60 feet Uh, by uh, 20 feet and just massive, massive work of architecture and quite beautiful, gold everywhere. And the disciples wanted Jesus to see how firm and stable and how valuable the temple was. And and Jesus had a very different prediction for them. Uh, And so that prediction that the temple would be destroyed led to two questions being asked of Jesus by the disciples. Number one question When will these things happen? That seems to be the question that was always on their minds. When's the kingdom going to come? When are you going to set up your earthly kingdom? And then the second question then is what will be the sign? What can we look for in anticipation to know that the kingdom has arrived or is arriving? And Jesus answered the second question and ignored the first one. In fact, his answer to the second question, what will be the sign of his coming, is the longest answer that Jesus gives to any question recorded in the New Testament. It covers an incredible swath of human history, uh, relating things that happened back in 586 BC in the time of Daniel, all the way to his second coming, which he talks about in some detail in verse 27. He says, then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And so the signs of the second coming, there's a couple of things to remember. Jesus compares the signs leading to his second coming as birth pains. Remember that back in the book of Matthew. The signs then that he's about to lay out 
are like contractions of a woman giving birth. That is, they start out um, far apart and not much intensity, but they become more frequent and become more intense as the birth approaches. And in that metaphor, the birth is the second coming of Jesus and the contractions are the signs. And then he begins to lay out the signs of his second coming. Well, the first sign I take it is the destruction of the temple. And that happened, of course, in 70 AD. But other signs he mentions here. One, he says there's going to become false messiahs. There's going to be people that rise up and say, I'm the messiah. And of course, that happened. Secular history tells us one after the other, they came. Jesus said simply about those false messiahs, don't believe them. Be discerning. That's good advice for Christians today, isn't it? There's always going to be false teachers. There's going to be more of them as the day approaches. Don't believe them. Stick to the word. Secondly, he says there's going to be a proliferation, proliferation of warfare and political unrest. Remember that word we saw last week translated, my favorite translation, commotion. That's the word I use a lot. Rigmarole, commotion. I can relate to that. It means simply instability and unrest. And we're seeing it all over our television screens, aren't we? Now, again, let's remember those things have always happened. There's always been false messiahs. There's always been false teachers. There's always been wars and rumors of wars. There's always been political unrest. And then to that, he says, there's going to be pandemonium in the heavens. That is the first heaven, the atmosphere, and the second heaven, outer space. And then also on earth, there's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be all manner of things we said can be described as um, acts of God or natural disasters, whatever your insurance agent prefers. But the point is, there are going to be a lot of them. But you say there's always been earthquakes. There's always been storms. There's always been atmospheric unrest. You're exactly right. But then he says one more sign, there's going to be persecution of believers. And just as he said of the false teachers that will come, don't believe them, to the proliferation of warfare and political unrest, to pandemonium in the heavens, to persecution of believers, he says, don't panic. Don't be overwhelmed with fear. Don't worry, even if you're arrested. He said, don't worry about what defense you're going to give because the Holy Spirit will give it to you at the moment. And so um, the point is this, yes, there's always been these things in the world, but as the time of Jesus' second coming approaches, they're going to become more intense and more frequent. Now, we must be honest that this is a very difficult text. Uh, generally, chapter 21, all of it is a difficult text, but specifically the text before us today, verses 20 through 24. And many good brothers and sisters have arrived at a very different interpretation of these verses. But the interpretations... The orthodox interpretations, I would say, generally fall into two broad categories. The first category is that everything that Jesus predicted here in chapter 21 has already been fulfilled. That's what those who would fall in the amillennial camp would say, that this all occurred in 70 AD. Everything that Jesus says, we're looking back at it from a historical perspective. The other point of view is that many of the things that Jesus predicts here, here have yet to happen, that they will be at the very end during a period of time we call the Great Tribulation. And that is my particular point of view as well. And I want you to know that up front because it won't make any sense to you if you don't know that. Uh, so uh, let's jump into our text then. Luke chapter 20, 1, uh, verses 20 through 24. 
Jesus is speaking. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And these and those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are days of vengeance so that all things will be written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. Now, way back in the summer of 2020, just a few months ago, we studied through the entirety of the book of Daniel. Jesus references Daniel in his answer to the disciples concerning the signs of his second coming. In fact, the name Daniel is mentioned in both Matthew and Mark's gospel. And Luke here uses the exact same verbiage, language that Daniel uses when he was speaking about the end of days. And so Daniel 9 specifically, remember Daniel 9 references the 70 weeks. Now I say hypothetically, do you remember? Because uh, I'll tell you a secret. I went back and listened to my sermon on Daniel chapter 9 last night because I didn't want to give you two different interpretations. I want to make sure I was being consistent with what I said back in the summer, and and I believe I am. Uh, You remember that that Daniel had this series of visions and beast and horns, and you remember all of that. But in Daniel chapter 9, there's a term used called the 70 weeks. And if you do the math and you understand the language, you understand that these are 70 weeks of years, meaning every week represents seven years. And if you follow the mathematics and the the chronology, you find that 69 of these 70 weeks have already occurred. But the 70th week of Daniel, what the Old Testament prophets called uh, Jacob's trouble, what we call New Testament, the great tribulation, those seven years leading up to the Lord's second coming have yet to occur. There remains one more week. Now, this time, the scripture says in the Old Testament, and Jesus confirms it in the Gospel of Matthew, will be a time more difficult than any that has ever come before it. Now, I find that the older I get, I sound more and more like my parents and my grandparents. And I think all of us assume that the time in which we're living is the worst that's ever been, right? We, we all assume that. But if you look back historically, that, that may or may not be true. On the other hand, some believe that's the best time we've ever been. And, and so because we only live one lifetime and we don't have any historical perspective, sometimes we tend to exaggerate. But Jesus is not exaggerating here. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 21. For then, speaking of that 70th week of Daniel, there will be a great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So not only is the worst that's ever occurred, it is the worst that will ever occur. Now that word tribulation is uh, a word that we experience all the time, that we talk about trials and tribulations. The Bible says in this world you shall have tribulation. That's nothing new. Christians have always experienced persecutions and trials and tribulations. The point is, that in that last seven year period, they're going to be more difficult and more intense than they've ever been. And I believe that Jesus here in the 21st chapter of Luke is referring to the time just prior to his second coming. 
Now, you remember how we've been studying this year. There, there is some rhyme and reason to it. We started the book of Daniel, and we studied the 12 chapters of Daniel. And remember chapter 9 through 12 is it's coming up until the end of days, and he gets these visions. He gets messages directly from uh, the two archangels. And then we went to Revelation, and we looked at the seven churches in the first three chapters, but we were referencing things further in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it gives us um, some really descriptive language about what these times are going to be like, that, that the sun's going to be darkened, right? And there's going to be earthquakes and all sorts of turmoil, and many, many people are going to lose their lives. But it's set in the context of seals. Remember, there's these documents that are rolled up and sealed and rolled up and sealed and rolled up and sealed until this scroll contains seven seals. And John has this vision. He's in the throne room of heaven. And the question is asked throughout heaven, who is worthy to open this document, which I take to be the title deed of the universe. And there's silence in heaven. No angels are worthy, and, and there, there's no one there that seems to be worthy. And John begins to weep because he knows that if no one is worthy to take possession of the universe, then Satan has won. And then John begins to whimper and begins to cry, and an angel, my translation, hits him in the ribs and says, be quiet. He says, look. And what does he see? He sees the Lamb of God. He sees the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus takes the scroll from the father and he begins to unseal this document. And with every seal, there's another plague and another plague. And he gets down to the seventh seal and he opens that seventh seal and there's these seven trumpets. And when the seven trumpets come to end, there's these seven bold judgments. The point is this, it's exactly what Jesus said about the contractions. They start out slow and then they become more intense and faster and more intense and faster and more intense until the birth happens. And the birth, of course, is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that tribulation has never happened. It's that the intensity and frequency will be like never before. And then Jesus gives us a very clear sign here in chapter 21, verse 20, that the end is imminent. He says, verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Now, you know that I was in a former life, a public school history teacher. And specifically, I taught Western civilization. And I will tell you, there have been many times in the history of Israel where they've been surrounded by armies. In fact, that seems to be um, their way of life. Remember, they are located geographically at this crossroads between Africa and Europe and Asia, right there in the Mediterranean Sea. And so armies would come back and forth and armies were around Jerusalem all the time. And you know about 590 BC, the Babylonian captivity happened when Daniel and his three friends were taken up there. And then they sent them home. They were allowed to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. Um, but you know that armies came, the Seleucids under Antiochus Epiphanes, desecrated the temple. Later on, the, the Romans came and occupied the, the city, and in 70 AD, totally destroyed the city. The Jewish people were dispersed all throughout the world, and for about 2,000 years, 
People could never anticipate a moment when this would be in the future because Jerusalem didn't exist the way we know it for a, for a long time. Now, it, it was rebuilt over the years. And remember, uh, the Muslims took it over at one point. You read about the Crusades, of how the Christians fried, tried to free Jerusalem by force. Um, but ultimately, uh, they are still surrounded by armies today because in 1948, um, Israel was reestablished as a sovereign nation and they are in the midst and surrounded by armies and countries who want to see them wiped off the face of the earth. The point is God is sovereign and what he has said is that the sign of the very end, I take it here in verse 20, is that there's going to be a final great battle. And the sign is that it's very, at the very end is when the armies are surrounding the city and recognize that her desolation is near. Mark and Matthew, in their account of this passage, call this period of history the abomination of desolation. Matthew 24, 15 says this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, what is an abomination? Abomination is a terrible sin. In the Old Testament, many sexual sins, Adultery, homosexuality, bestiality are called abominations to the Lord. But in most of the cases in the Old Testament where the word abomination is used, and it's used dozens of times, it has to do with idolatry, which of course was the favorite sin of Israel. They kept coming back to worshiping false gods. That's why in Exodus chapter 20, first two commandments, don't worship any other gods. Don't make any graven images because that was their habit. And the abomination of desolation, I believe, is a terrible sin, the terrible sin of idolatry at its most wicked. And what the scripture says in both Old Testament, the book of Daniel, and the book of Revelation, that in the very end, this entity in Daniel known as the prince, and in the book of Revelation as the Antichrist, is going to set up an idol to guess who? Himself. He's going to call the nations of the world to come to Jerusalem and bow down to him. And this is, I believe, the abomination of desolation. Now, in history and in prophecy, oftentimes you will have types of fulfillments. That is, you'll have um, events in history th that are similar to the ultimate fulfillment leading up to the actual fulfillment. For example, we mentioned uh, the Seleucids back in um, 160 BC or so, um, the descendants of the Greeks, this man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes entered the temple there in Jerusalem and he sacrificed pigs upon the altar and forced the priest to eat this pork, not only desecrating the temple, but uh, of course defiling these priests of the most high God. And he set up an altar there in the temple to Zeus, and then in 70 AD, of course, uh, the Romans came to put down an insurrection. Over a million Jews were killed during this period. And um, the Bible, though, says, if I understand it correctly, that still yet to come is this ultimate abomination of desolation when the Antichrist comes into Jerusalem, sets up his throne there, and requires the world not only to come under his authority politically, but to worship him as God. Now, 
The question is, why would Jesus tell us that? Well, he says, if this is a warning, that's the point we're looking at. These are warnings. What should they do when they see armies surrounding the city? Well, three things he says. One, you need to flee to the mountains. That is, you need to get out as fast as you can and seek shelter. You need to leave the city because that's going to be the epicenter of the destruction that's going to happen. And you need to stay away if you're not in the city. Now, uh, note how different that is. Now, he's speaking here to Christians, I take it. Note how different that is from what he says back just in verses 12 and 13 here in the same 21st chapter. He says, but before all these things, that is before the very end, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons. So the first wave of persecution against Christians, we said, is going to come from the Jews. That happened historically. And then it's going to come from the Romans. He says, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. That happened and continues to happen through all the Gentile kingdoms. He says, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Then he goes on to describe how Christians are going to be betrayed by parents and siblings and would-be friends. Now, then contrast that to what he says happens at the very end when you see the army surrounding the cities. Should you, you go quietly to prison and let the Holy Spirit defend you? No, he says, run. So I take it to be two very different things. So, so there's this period of time in which there's an opportunity for grace where the gospel is going out and there's an evangelistic witness. Chris said a moment ago, we, we have these two mountains, right? We, we have these two advents. There's the first coming of Christ where he came to seek and save the lost. There is his second coming, which is the distant mountain where he's going to judge the living and the dead. And we live now in this valley called the age of grace. And what is our task in that period of time? It's to take the gospel. It's the great commission, is it, Brother Lawrence? But there's going to come a day, remember I said the other day that I hear people saying that the Lord's patience is infinite. And I said, that's not true because there's coming a day when that window of opportunity, that opportunity to repent and be saved will close and then comes judgment. I take it that's what Jesus is talking about here. That when you see those armies surrounding Jerusalem, and it's leading up to the battle of Armageddon, the age of grace is over. Now is coming judgment. You get as far away from there as you possibly can. And so it's two very different things. Well, let's read on. We see the warnings. Now we see the woes. Verse 22, he says, because these are days of vengeance. These aren't days of grace any longer. These are days of vengeance. That's the Lord's vengeance so that all these things which are written will be fulfilled. And woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Days of vengeance to fulfill all that has been written. Well, what has been written in the Bible concerning vengeance? Well, we know the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So the Lord is the one that's ultimately going to, to take vengeance against uh, rebellion and sin. But again, go back in your mind to Daniel, to that very last chapter of Daniel, chapter 12, when all the visions have been interpreted and Daniel has this interview with an angel 
Um, and, and then we have this description, Daniel 12.1, speaking of the very last days. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew. He described as a period of great tribulation, such as never existed. He says, at that time, Michael's going to rise. There'll be time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book of life will be rescued. Jesus says uh, it's going to be a terrible time. And he says, woe to the women who are nursing infants. Now, we're pro-life here, and we see through Jesus' ministry that he often held children. He um, spoke a curse against anyone who would do any harm to a child. But he says, woe to the nursing infants, I, I, the, the women who are nursing infants. I take that because women who have just given birth are most vulnerable, who will have the most difficult time running and hiding, and infants, of course, are uh, defenseless against this kind of uh, turmoil that is coming. So, so Jesus is just reinforcing what he said up until this point. This is going to be a terrible time. When, when the age of grace ends and judgment finally falls, and in fact, uh, he talks about this term called wrath. Look at verse 23 again. He says, Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, that there will be great distress upon the land, and wrath to this people. Now, we sometimes confuse wrath with discipline. The Bible says that those the Lord loves, he what? He disciplines, he, he reproves. And you parents understand this. Because you love your children, you correct them. Uh, the purpose of the correction is not to ultimately overwhelm them or drive them to despair, but to correct the behavior so that they don't ruin their lives if it's done correctly. On the other hand, the Bible speaks of something called wrath, which is not discipline. Its purpose is not to redirect, but it is to punish. And this is what he's talking about here. At the very end of the great tribulation, I take it in the last three and a half years of the great tribulation, at the very end, just before Christ sets his foot back on planet earth, it's going to be a time of wrath and punishment. Look what he says, verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. He's speaking about the Jewish people. And in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, and we've discussed this before, Zechariah predicts that in that period, two-thirds of the Jewish population will be killed violently. And the rest will be led captive. And Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot. Now, I think this leads us to a very important question, one that is hotly debated and has been for many, many years and, and is being debated to this good day. And that is, what about Israel? What is the ultimate fate of Israel? I mentioned the amillennial position earlier that sees all of these things as having already been fulfilled. What they would say to the question, what about Israel, is that God is done with Israel. He set them aside and that the church is now 
placed Israel in God's economy. I don't believe that, primarily because of what we find in Romans chapter 11. Will you turn with me there now? Romans chapter 11. By the way, Lord willing, when we finish the book of Luke next fall, we're going to start on a verse-by-verse study of Romans, and I'm looking very much forward to that. The book of Romans primarily is a treatise on the doctrine of justification by faith by the apostle Paul. But Paul was Jewish. And in chapter 11, he answers the question, is God done with Israel? And this is what he says. Let's just begin at the very beginning of the chapter. Romans 11.1. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Look at verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? And so Paul makes it very clear that God is not totally and completely done with the nation of Israel yet. So fast forward there to verse 25 here in Romans 11. Paul says this, For I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, deliver will come from Zion and will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now go back to Luke 21 and verse 24. Let's read it again. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until what? The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The exact same terminology that Paul uses in Romans chapter 11. The times of the Gentiles... Remember I told you that this conversation covered ground from 586 B.C. all the way to the second coming? The times of the Gentiles began when the Babylonians took Israel captive, and it will not end until Jesus defeats the Antichrist and sets up his millennial kingdom on earth. And he says what's going to happen between the time of Jesus' first sign, the destruction of Jerusalem, and to the time of his second coming is there's going to be a continuous increase in false teachers and messiahs, natural disasters, persecution of Christians, and at the very end, in the final seven years, it's going to escalate and, escalate and intensify to a point where it's easy to see this is the worst epic of human history. Nothing has ever happened like it. Jesus calls it a period of great tribulation. The Old Testament prophets call it Jacob's trouble, but whatever you call it, it ends the same way. Jesus wins. And so here is the application, friends. We don't just study this, as Chris said, to debate the signs and the times and when. Jesus doesn't even go there. They kept asking, when's this going to happen? He wouldn't answer that. He says, here's the signs. But he doesn't give us these signs to make us fearful, just the opposite, to, to give us courage. What it encourages is that Jesus is God. He knows the end from the beginning. They were about to crucify him in about 48 hours when this conversation took place. And the charge against them is that he claims to be God and he's not. And here he is proving he is God. Only God knows how everything is going to end. And so let that bring courage to your heart. This world seems chaotic and out of sorts and disconnected and no rhyme or reason. It's happening just as God said it would.
He knows the end from the beginning. He has chosen to share with us, not to confuse us, but to encourage us to remember this, that his victory is certain. His victory is certain. And because we know his victory is certain, and because we see these signs happening all around us, it is to awaken us to the truth that time is short. Don't waste your time. Don't be so invested in this life. It's all going to be burned up in a matter of years. It's all going away. Lay up treasure in heaven. And ultimately, that tells us that our task is urgent, isn't it? We are in this valley between the two mountains, the two advents of Christ. And we don't know exactly how close we are to the Lord's second coming, but we are certainly closer than when Jesus said it. And if we have any discernment whatsoever, can't we see these signs happening? Can't we see them intensifying, even in our own lifetime? And so we know that ultimately one day that window of opportunity for people to respond to the gospel will be closed. But now it's open. Today is the day of salvation. So I would say that to an individual sitting here today. You don't know what tomorrow holds. But you know that Jesus has promised to judge and bring wrath against those who ultimately reject him. And so the gospel message is urgent, not just globally, but it's urgent in this room. You're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Today is the day. Bow your knee. Confess your sins. Agree with his assessment of you that you're a sinner and you fall short of the glory of God and run to him and his grace. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you're a Christian here today, the call for evangelism is urgent. Tell your family, your friends, your neighbors. Support missions and missionaries and church plants around the world because the Lord Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And um, I confess, Lord, I, I've had a difficult time studying this chapter. And yet, Lord, the big picture seems to be pretty clear. Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign. And one day he's coming back as he promised in John 14. And he's going to rule and reign, and the government will be on his shoulders, as Isaiah said. And Father, we haven't seen that fulfilled yet. So we take these things to be future still. Lord, we know that your prophecies fall into two categories. They either have been fulfilled or they will be fulfilled. And so, Father, help us to be discerning and wise as we see the days approaching. Help us not to dismiss things that we see that uh, the scripture talks about as coincidental. Lord, as part of your pattern and plan, that you're bringing this world to an end according to your will. So Father, help us not to be overly attached to the temporary. Help us to hold loosely the things of this world in our hand, knowing that very soon it'll all be done away with. Help us to seek Jesus and his will and your righteousness. Help us, Father, to be zealous to take the gospel message all over the world until Jesus returns, because he's coming soon. Thank you for that promise and encouragement today. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. 
To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.